although I hope that the title of the lecture has intrigued you somewhat, and uh, that, of course, imposes upon me the duty of resolving any uh, uncertainty or um, questioning that is going on in your minds. Uh, there are several statements in Scripture which begin with the words, I know. And many of these are wonderful testimonies of faith found in the Old as well as the New Testaments. And we need to make them ours not only in terms of the truth that they express, but the spirit with which they are expressed. We live in a time of skepticism and agnosticism about divine things that uh, is not restricted to the world, but can even uh, filter into the church and color our appreciation of God's Word. And that is perhaps particularly so with regard to Old Testament declarations of faith. The spirituality of the Old Testament is not recognized as much as it ought to be. Now, if I were to go around and ask you for statements uh, which are testimonies of faith in which the words I know uh, are found, I don't think it would be long before Job's words, which are before us this afternoon, would, uh, would come to mind. And probably they would come to mind in the King James Version and via Handel's Messiah. And thereby, I'm afraid, hangs a tale or a difficulty. Uh, and it puts me in the awkward position of appearing to undermine uh, a truth which probably uh, you have long believed. So let me say that I need to acknowledge that I've had my own mind changed on this of late. Uh, and by way of uh, self-defense and by way of uh, lessening the offense caused by that statement, I've included some quotations on the handout, uh, which indicate to you a degree of uncertainty that notable servants of God in the past have expressed with regard to this immense and wonderful statement. Uh, Calvin and Voss and Meredith Klein, and there, down at the bottom of the column, someone who isn't as usually associated with any of those, namely Albert Barnes. Uh, but if you have Barnes' commentary on Job and you look at his treatment of these verses in Job 19, I think you'll uh, be appreciative of what he has to say. Uh, I had to come to terms with the fact uh, that I was agreeing with the founder of New School Presbyterianism and a crypto-Arminian uh, to boot. So I sought refuge in Calvin and Voss and Klein. Uh, but that, that, by the way, um, let me encourage you to stay with me and I hope we'll end as the book of Job ends, namely with a doubling of truth and of certainty. Uh, we'll follow the outline in the handout with the addition of uh, 3C under the heading Beatific Vision 
instead of bodily resurrection, three add 3C, discussion and conclusions. Well, now then, let, let, let's begin. And the first thing I want to do is to focus, as you see, on the general character of this statement under the three headings given. It would be useful if you have uh, a Bible with you to have it open at Job 19. Very obviously, and first of all, here is a claim to knowledge. And by saying, I know, Job is not only speaking personally. He is marking a contrast with what has preceded. Because in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 19, uh, Job expresses a deep wish uh, amid surrounding gloom. Oh, that my words were written, that they were inscribed in a book with an iron pen and lead engraved in the rock. And then we have verse 25, For I know. And that word for uh, ought, I believe, to be translated more strongly. But as for me, and if you look at the selection of translations on the handout, you'll see that the American Standard Version, 1904, has that rendering. But as for me, he's making a contrast. He's now laying claim to a knowledge that is expressive of massive, joyful certainty. This knowledge is the same as the assurance of faith. It is a discovery of something that has been revealed to him. The Hebrew, I know, could be translated, I have come to know. And in the working translation at the bottom of the column that I've provided you with, that is what I've adopted. I have come to know that my Redeemer lives. So, we may say, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, after Job's longing to have his dying words recorded in rock because no one listens to him, he is now confident that God is his Goel, his kinsman redeemer. And he says, I know, to introduce what has been revealed to him. So I know is another way of saying I believe. And this knowledge has both content and effect. Secondly, it's content. My Redeemer lives and he will stand. Or he will rise up or take his stand. The object of Job's believing knowledge is a person and his activity. And that is what is summed up in this term, Redeemer. Questions have been raised about its suitability. For example, by Gerhardus Voss, no less, uh, in his treatment of these verses in the symposium the eschatology of the Old Testament, Voss objects to the term redeemer uh, because he 
sees it as encouraging a leap toward the New Testament. And the reading into this text of the whole doctrine of substitutionary atonement. He wants this term to be considered in its Old Testament context, understandably, first. And when we do that, I think the term Redeemer can stand. Especially if the word kinsman is added to it. But as for me, I know that my kinsman Redeemer lives and he will rise up. Uh, we'll see that the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, is a significant person and exercises uh, considerable activity uh, in the Old Testament community. Strictly, it refers to a next of kin. And that is something Job has just said he does not have. It's very important to look at these verses in relation to what immediately precedes them. Uh, Job has been saying that he has no next of kin. And he lists various relations, brothers, relatives, guests, servants, wife, children, intimate friends. And this amounts to the fact that he has no one to adopt his cause and argue his case. So there's the content of the knowledge. Kinsman redeemer who lives and who will rise up. <coughs> we'll look at these statements a little more later. There's the content of the knowledge. Now the effect of the knowledge. Remember, it's, it's a, a synonym for faith. This knowledge produces an upheaval of two kinds. First of all, emotional, and secondly, mental. And here we're going uh, outside our text, so to speak, to the verses that immediately follow. Um, Emotional, in verse 27 there at the end, my heart faints within me. Now, the word rendered heart is really the term for kidneys. Regarded as the most sensitive organ in the human anatomy. And in chapter 16, verse 23, I'm sorry, 16, verse 13, Job has said that God has set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. Pours out my gall on the ground. But here, what he's saying is literally that his kidneys have ended up in his chest metaphorically, of course, uh, a similar sort of expression to having one's heart in one's mouth. We use that to describe apprehension. 
for whatever reason. But Job is not being apprehensive here. He isn't, as it were, holding his breath with something um, pending. Rather, he is overjoyed. And that tells us that faith is not fact without feeling. It is certainly not feeling alone. But it is equally certain that it is fact felt. Fact, faith is not fact without feeling. It is certainly not feeling alone. But it is equally certain that it is fact felt. Job inwardly is in a state of emotional disturbance and upheaval on account of this disclosure that has been made to him by God that he has a kinsman redeemer. And then mental, in verses 28 and 29, you see what Job does there. Uh, He warns the friends of the judgment of God. They are persecuting him because they are convinced that the cause of all his suffering is his sin. Now, that Job has a moment of light and warmth. He is able to warn them that the judgment of God is hanging over them on account of their misrepresentations. So the conclusion that I draw from this very superficial survey of these verses is this. That whatever we make of the details of this statement. This is an immense declaration. In the book of Job and in the whole Bible. And a test of the way in which this declaration is treated is whether its magnitude is appreciated. You'll find in in liberal commentaries, um, granted, but you'll find comments on this statement that are demeaning and dismissive. The very fact that these words are treated like that is an indication of something about the commentator, not the text. Well, what exactly is being said here? And here we move on to number three. Beatific vision instead of bodily resurrection. That title indicates that we are going to focus more on beatific vision than bodily resurrection at this point. And that's the reverse, of course, of what is so often done. Uh, These verses are often used, they have been often used, as uh, an Old Testament text regarding the resurrection of the body. Not univocally throughout Christian history, but certainly the substantial uh, weight of conviction and opinion has been in favor of Job 19, 25-27, referring to not only the bodily resurrection, 
but referring uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ as the Redeemer and the one who raises the bodies of his dead saints. In the last two centuries, the 19th and 20th, there's been a swing, a shift to the other extreme with regard to these verses. Instead of uh, an emphasis on Christology, Messianism, resurrection of the body, redemption, these verses have come to be regarded as having nothing to do with any of those grand and glorious certainties. And you can see from the quotations uh, that uh, even in the 16th century, in Calvin's time, he had to encounter some views of that sort (coughs) with regard to these verses. And um, what I'd like you to note in addition is that the second quote, just a few words, this is better recognized from a passage in Ezekiel. He's there referring to Ezekiel 37, the vision of dry bo- the valley of dry bones. Note the expression, better recognized. In other words, what he's saying is this. That while Job 19, 25-27 does refer to these realities, they are more clearly demonstrable. Well, that's an interesting distinction. They're more clearly demonstrable, provable, from Ezekiel 37 than Job 19 itself. Well, now we're, at this point anyway, emphasizing beatific vision rather than bodily resurrection. Here's the place to begin. Because whatever conclusions we draw about bodily resurrection, beatific vision is the dominant theme. That is what is clearly and repeatedly emphasized. The disagreements that have taken place over exegesis and interpretation have had nothing to do with beatific vision. They're all related to bodily resurrection. Why? Well, for this reason, three times in these verses, a sight of God is referred to, and most clearly and unambiguously. Part of the reason why I gave you some translations on the handout is to indicate uh, that there are words and expressions here which whose meaning is difficult to arrive at with commanding and universal certainty, but not with regard to beatific vision. 1926, I got the English Standard Version in front of me. I shall see God. Verse 27, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and we could repeat the expression, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. 
<coughs> so there are at least three expressions where this sight of God is referred to. Now there is room for discussion as to how a couple of expressions might be rendered. Uh, for example, whom, um, whom I shall see for myself. Preposition for can mean to or for meaning on my behalf. And that, I think, is the better rendering. On my behalf, for me, on my side. Job's immense problem was that he thought that God wasn't on his side. Similarly, whom my eyes shall behold and not another... That statement has been understood as if Job were saying, I will see him with my own eyes for myself and not be dependent on someone else's sight. But it can also be rendered, whom I shall see not as a stranger. And I think those two renderings are preferable. That Job is here saying, I will see God for me, are not estranged or far from me. For me and not far from me. That's obviously relevant to his whole anguish. The evidence for the beatific vision is clear, unambiguous. And we may say, uh, given the relative brevity of this pericope, abundant. What about bodily resurrection? Well, the opposite needs to be said about that. Because the clear indications with regard to this disappear in the translation history. After 1611, after the King James Version, and then the New King James Version in the early 80s. Um, there are and this is where, of course, we, we run into Handel's Messiah and so on. There are words in, in any uh, reputable rendering uh, of the King James Version, there are words in italics. And the translators tell us in their preface to the reader that they expect their knowledge of Hebrew and Greek to, <coughs> to be, or they expect knowledge of Hebrew and Greek to advance in the years to come and therefore improvements to be made in their translation. And so where they were unsure, honorable men that they were, uh, they put words in italics to complete the sense. And here in this text, uh, the, the words day, worms and body are all in italics. They're not in the original. There's nothing corresponding to them in the Hebrew. And of course, these words carry so much freight when one thinks of the resurrection of the body. And that's why American Standard Version, you'll not find day, worms, body dropped out. They're not in the original text. 
And then there are words whose meaning is uncertain. The word last is without, it's an adjective, but it doesn't have a noun. Last what? We're not told. And the verb destroy. Um, in verse 26, is it? Yes, the verb destroy. That is difficult. The meaning of that verb is difficult, as I'll show you in a moment, difficult to fix with certainty. <coughs> the, the word earth, stand on the earth, verse 25, that could be rendered dust. Eretz in Job uh, can mean either. Jo you know, it's used with either sense. So there are real difficulties here in the text. And they're not to be avoided. Girhadas Voss refers to, quote, the extraordinary difficulty of their interpretation. As to verse 26, he wrote, the text is so obscure that I prefer not to make any attempt at explaining it. Well now, let's try and discuss some of these statements and work our way toward a conclusion. First, let's think of the term Goel, the Redeemer. It's on the intervention of this Redeemer that everything turns. In the Old Testament, the next of kin was to act in situations of need. He was to recover a relative's lost property or liberty, avenge his unjust death, or marry his brother's childless widow. Job has, in effect, lost all these and needs a next of kin to restore them to him, to release him, to avenge his death and perpetuate his name. Such recovery was often effected by the payment of a ransom and that makes the term redeemer entirely appropriate as a translation. So the kinsman redeemer exercised this most significant role and it's clear that it was a role not confined to the Old Testament people of God. Job was not a descendant of Abraham. Other societies uh, had this element in their cultures and it still uh, continues, doesn't it? You only have to think of the, of the vendetta and family honor. That, and it's, it's the go ill distorted that's at the root of it. An argument I think could be advanced for saying that this responsibility of mutual care goes right back to creation in the care that the husband and wife, the husband had for the wife and the wife for the husband and that in the family. But that by the way. The really significant thing is that this term was used in connection with Jehovah's relationship with Israel. 
Jehovah became Israel's next of kin by his deliverance of them from bondage in Egypt. Now, what Job says about this Goel is that he lives and he stands up. He lives and he stands up, or will stand up. Those terms mean much more than exists. Lives means more than exists. And stands up refers to more than physical activity. What Job is saying is that he knows his kinsman has life and that he will act. He has life and he will act. And both of those verbs point in the direction of the kinsman redeemer being divine. With regard to his having life, remember Job has been referring to inanimate rock and of himself as a dying man. It's as if he were writing his own epitaph in verses 23 and 24. Life is in telling contrast to a rock and a dying man. Job's kinsman is living and will not die. That's what he's saying. And the adjective for living and the expression as the Lord lives. Used repeatedly in the Old Testament for God himself. He lives. His kinsman redeemer is divine. Secondly, he rises up. Now, what is in view here is equivalent to acting as a witness. Job is envisaging proceedings in a court of law. Earlier he has said that his leanness witnesses against him. His very appearance to many will prove his sinfulness. Later on, he refers to God rising up to judge him. And in other places in the Old Testament, God is described as rising up against false witnesses on behalf of the godly to defend and to deliver them. And so Job is expecting that his kinsman redeemer will <coughs> rise up on his behalf, intervene, and secure a favorable verdict against which there can be no appeal. Now that is all of a piece, isn't it, with the Christian's expectation of being vindicated at the last day through the judicial activity of his kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, so far, so good, one hopes. Now, 
the waters deepen and darken. When and where are the questions. When will the kinsman redeemer intervene? Where will he intervene? And those questions or the answers to those questions are related to the latter part of verse 25 and the first part of verse 26. And uh, Voss's statements on these verses are not all that encouraging. So we need to be cautious, but not frightened. In the English Standard Version, we read, quote, And at the last, he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed. Now, we are going to look at this statement from the standpoint of when and where. First, the timing of this intervention. When? And here the words, the word after in verse 25 and verse 26, because the same word translated at the last in the English Standard Version and as after in verse 26. So what about the timing of this intervention? Well, in verse 25, and after, what? He will stand upon the earth. We don't know. We're not told. But clearly, something will take place, and as a result, the Lord will rise to act. Then, in verse 26, this is further specified. And after my skin has been thus destroyed. It's related, something is going to happen which relates to Job's skin after which the Lord will rise to act. Well now what about these? First of all verse 25, and after he will stand on the earth. After what? We're not told. Several commentators connect this with Isaiah's, and there are many connections between Job and Isaiah. The best commentary on Job, uh, though there are some serious uh, qualifiers to be included there, but I think the best commentary on Job is by John Hartley in the New International Commentary on the Old Testament series, teaches Bible in Azusa Pacific. And um, he points out that many commentators link this after, Acharon, the last, contrast with Rishon, first and last. That's Isaianic, isn't it? And so they would understand this first after as a description of God as the last one. The one who 
arbitrates, resolves, determines, finalizes everything. Now that's more than useful theologically, isn't it? And it should quest, uh, settle the question as, whether, as to whether the kinsman redeemer is divine or not. But the suggestion has not commended itself widely, and I think it's a bit of a stretch. And as I've pointed out, the expression, he lives and he will rise, themselves point in the direction of the kinsman being, redeem, being divine. So what then about this after in verse 25? Another thing to bear in mind as you read Job is the law court framework and character of the book. Satan is in God's law court. Job is brought into a legal dispute with God, with Satan, with his friends, his friends with him. And the unraveling of it all is by way of a legal uh, resolution. So last here means, or can mean, and I think it does mean, the, uh, a reference to the one who at the end of the process, by his testimony, produces the verdict. Favorable one, of course, in this case. Now, at this point, it's worth noting that while the last word in the debate between God and Job comes from Job's mouth, Job 42, I repent in dust and ashes, the last word in the legal dispute about Job's character comes from God's mouth. My servant Job. That's what settles it. So the possibility is opened up that verse 25 is an expression <coughs> of Job's expectation that his kinsman redeemer will intervene and speak on his behalf decisively which in effect is what happened. Well, where is this going to take place? I've already mentioned to you that the Hebrew word Eretz uh, can mean uh, earth or it can mean, uh, I'm sorry, not Eretz, Adama. It can mean earth or it can mean dust. It's the word that gives us Adam. And that twofold possibility creates a problem, you see, doesn't it? Job is expecting to die. He's writing his epitaph, as it were. Is he saying, anticipating his internment and subsequently the intervention of the Redeemer who will take his stand on Job's dust? His decomposing body. Is that what he's saying? It could well be. Can't be excluded. But it could also be no more than earth or ground. We have to hold 
open those two possibilities. What then about this expression, after my skin has been thus destroyed? Now I've said to you that the verb destroy is a difficult verb to, um, to translate with precision. It's got a primary and a secondary meaning. Primary, make a round, to do a round. It's used in Joshua uh, about the destruction of Jericho. Obviously, that doesn't fit here. Another meaning is to destroy. And that, of course, is suitable. But when you said that, how do you understand destroy? The verb is used of the clearing of trees from a forest, Isaiah 10, 34, or the beating of olives from an olive tree, Isaiah 17, verse 6. It's metaphorical, you see. How does this verb relate to skin? That's the question. It's not after my body is destroyed, it's after my skin is destroyed, my flesh. What does it mean? Well, the consensus is that the best rendering for the verb is to strip, to peel in strips, or to flay. And that would suit skin, wouldn't it? But still, the all-important question as to whether Job is thinking of his torn, emaciated flesh. Remember, he's, been, he's on the ash heap. He's scraping himself with a piece of pottery. Could this not be a description of his torn, bleeding skin? It could, I think. Whether it does or not, you know, is another question. But it could fit. Does it refer to uh, torn flesh? Or does it refer to a skeleton without flesh? To his body as emaciated or as decomposed? And you, I don't think you have the detailed reply to that. Now, you, you, can, you can see that this raises a question as to the propriety of saying this teaches the resurrection of the body full stop. And I remind you of Calvin's comment, this is better recognized. In other words, he's saying, you know, and Voss goes further than he did, that there's this, there's this, ellip, there's this veil of obscurity. And I hope I'll have time to indicate why. A suggestion as to why. There's this veil of obscurity. And yet there's a certainty of expectation expressed in this text. And what we must never do, you see, is to allow the uncertainties about the data to undermine or obliterate this certain, clear, unambiguous, threefold assertion, I shall see God for me and not far from me. Now, if you look at the translations, you'll see that some render 
in my flesh or skin or without my flesh. And the preposition, Hebrew preposition, min can mean both. From within or from without. From, literally. But is he in the body or is he out of the body? And that again is an uncertainty. The view that I suggest to you is this, that what these verses are pointing to is that Job, in his distressed, emaciated condition, uh, expects and anticipates that God will intervene, and that as a result of his uh, judgment, Job will be restored. By way of support for that, remember that that is what Elihu promised him. Job 33. If there is an angel, a mediator, one of a thousand, to declare to man what is right for man in relation to God, then God is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. That's what Elihu did or began to do. God followed him, completed it. Job was prevented from going into the pit by the intervention of God. But secondly, this is what happened at the end of the book. Job is saying, whom my eyes shall behold. And at the end of the book he says, now my eye sees you. No longer estranged. Reconciliation. Fellowship restored. Vindicated before he died through seeing God intervene on his behalf. So, beatific vision instead of bodily resurrection. That's the emphasis in Job. Fourthly, beatific vision and bodily resurrection. The interpretation I've put before you doesn't endorse the popular Christian understanding of Job 19.25-27. Does this mean that that understanding should be given up? No, certainly not. The question we've been exploring is this. What did Job mean by what he said? And the answer to that question must come from within the book of Job itself. But there's another question. Because the book of Job is part of Holy Scripture. What what do these statements mean in the larger scriptural context? And to that question, the answer is that Job has Christological and soteriological dimensions. It is messianic in character. 
it does anticipate the bodily resurrection and the beatific vision in glory. On what grounds? Basis and then exposition. On what grounds can such an assertion be made? Is it only because all Scripture is inspired, Job is in the Old Testament, linked to the New, it must be? No. It's not only that, though that is not unimportant. There is an expression, this is most important, there is an expression in the book of Job itself which gives instruction how, as to how the Lord's appearing and all that follows it is to be understood. Job 42.10 reads, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. English Standard Version. The NIV is weaker still. Rendered literally, the Hebrew means the Lord turned the captivity of Job. Remember Psalm 126 verse 1? When the Lord turned the captivity of Zion, Jeremiah speaks of the return from exile in Babylon by means of this expression and recalls the deliverance from Egypt. No, no, just think of this. There's Egypt, a type of the Christian salvation. Return from exile, exactly the same. And this statement tells us understand Job's affliction and restoration in exactly the same way. John Hartley's commentary, to which I've referred, makes this comment on this verse. He's quoting um, an Old Testament scholar who, whom I'm not familiar with. This is what he says, Since Job has not experienced captivity, the phrase seems to mean, take a new direction. The Lord turned the captivity of Job means the Lord did something different from, with Job than he had done before. No. That presents a kind of fickle God. Not one who is firm and faithful. The Lord didn't introduce a new direction. He provided a larger dimension. Understand it as captivity ended. Liberty, release, vindication, favor, plenty, restored. And the end of the book is not happy ever after. It's forever blessed. The appearance of the Lord as kinsman redeemer brings Job's captivity to Satan 
because that is what it was. Brings Job's captivity to Satan to an end. Restores him physically. Blesses his latter days as much as the days before he was afflicted. No, not as much as. More than. Double. This is an Old Testament anticipation of heaven. Length of days on earth, fellowship with and service to the Lord here below. That's how the Old Testament describes length of days. Here he is 140 years, twice the three score years and ten. He's up there with the patriarchs. And the, there's a social gathering, and there's a festal gathering, and there's a larger family, and there's peace, and there's unity. Here's the gathering of the redeemed at the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Old Testament terms, the Lord turned again the captivity of Job. And so we look at Job 19, 25 to 7, through the pers uh, spectacles of Job in Job. And then, via this statement in Job, Job in the whole of Scripture. Why the obscurity then in Job 19? Well, that's his time and place in redemptive history. As in many other matters, Christians should understand more of what is presented in the Old Testament than the Old Testament figures themselves did. And magnificent though Job 19, 25-27 is, it is less, less, much less than what each of us and every Christian knows because of the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light, to light through the gospel. There are many wonderful statements in Scripture prefaced by the words, I know. But perhaps this one deserves to be ranked among the greatest of them, even if its meaning in its own time and place is to be limited in the way outlined. Because it is a triumph of the victory that overcomes the world the friends, the flesh, Job's affliction, and, and the devil. And of course it's all the more wonderful because Job knew so little and lost so much. Let us, whatever we may be called upon, to let go, hold fast the confession of our faith in Christ, for he is faithful who promised. Thank you.